I'm Chris Lindstrom, and this is the Food About Town podcast. In episode 79 of the Food About Town podcast, I bring you part two of my interview with Evan Dawson from WXXI and his daily show Connections, which is found 12 to 2 every day on 1370 AM, and you can also subscribe to it on their podcast feed. Um, In part two, I pivot a little bit away from food, actually almost completely away from food, and we talk to Evan Dawson about interviewing. Uh, We talk about his transition from TV to radio, talk about a couple uh, a little more contentious topics that have gone on recently on the show. We hit on uh, Black Lives Matter. We talked about evidence-based interviewing and the balance between that and experiential information. And uh, I think this was a really useful conversation. Uh, got a little of Evan's opinions on things, and this this was. I'm I'm glad we pivoted away from food for an hour. Uh, when you get a chance to talk to somebody who is such an ingrained part of the Rochester community at this point, it's uh, I, I thought it was really valuable, and uh, I'd really appreciate if you can share this one out. I think we got some very inf- interesting information from from Evan on how he does his job every day and with how influential he can be with the interviews he gets and the people from the community he talks to, I think this is a um, very valuable conversation. So, um, again, I'd really appreciate if you can share it out. Uh, And if you enjoyed it, uh, let Evan know at Evan Dawson on Twitter. Uh, Share with me at Food About Town on Facebook and at Stromy on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks so much for listening. And coming up this next week is the start of the Best of Rochester voting in the city newspapers. So... Uh, Get Food About Town on the ballot again for best podcast. And thanks for listening. Conversation. 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 Connection, if you will. Oh, don't oh, do that. Don't oh, do that. Oh, boo. I was thinking about using the music as part of the intro, overlaying <laughs> it with the intro. Have you ever heard the actual song? I actually, I think I did once. It's because a rah, rah, ride. It's a good tune. Because because of the show. Actually, I think I went and listened to it yeah, once. Yeah, no, they're, they're very good. I, I And then, by the way, they have Syracuse University connections and... Um, Geneva connection. I still hear from one of the guy's dads. Really? So I don't, I actually am shamefully not promoting them enough on the show. They're great. Rah, rah, riot. Yeah. Awesome and stuff. it's, and it, the song's called Shadow Casting. And it really, it hits the show and it's hard to avoid that this is the show. We're ready for the show. Yeah. That's <laughs> the song's it, there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, 
Um, I think we'll split this into two parts. So uh, we're this is part two with Evan Dawson from WXXI Connections and uh, author of Summer in a Glass. Let's see what that actually introduced you this time. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's nice. Um, so for the second part, first part we talked a lot about local wine, Finger Lakes wine. For the second part, I kind of want to dive into um, talking to you about running the show, about interviewing. I've been listening to a podcast recently um, run by Jesse Thorne, and it's called The Turnaround. It's interviewing an interviewer about interviewing. and I, I, I like it already. I, one, I, <laughs> That's I, my life. I think it's a really well-done podcast. He's had on some fascinating guests already, and I've really been enjoying it. So I kind of want to take the opportunity to talk a little bit about how the show runs. And um, I'm going to use you balance a lot because I find the balance of how the show is kind of fascinating. So um, I think the first um, I brought up briefly in the, the last episode, you had a controversial episode recently with uh, Lovely Warren. And it got a bit contentious. And... I want to talk a little bit about the balance between maintaining your objective journalism perspective and putting yourself out there. Um, obviously, your show is more objective, more journalistic. Mm-hmm. But how does that balance work for you while you're running the show, while you're doing these interviews, as sometimes they can go in all these different directions? Well... First, I'm going to disappoint you and diffuse things a little bit here. <laughs> Because I'm only going to say a little bit about that interview with the mayor, and I'll, I'll speak more generally. Okay? Yeah. Um, I have great respect for the mayor. She has come on many times since the show launched in 2014, right when she was becoming mayor. And um, to the extent that people think it got contentious, she has a lot of passion. There's a word. Absolutely. I have no problem with that. I have no problem with being criticized for what I do. I do more than 500 hours of radio a year. I am going to get it wrong at times. I don't regret the questions and the importance of asking about certain subjects that we had the other day, uh, but I don't view that as anything all that abnormal. That's part of the job. People get uh, passionate about their beliefs, and, and uh, that is okay. Uh, I have no problem with that. There have been times where there have been moments like that, not necessarily the other day, but moments like that, and people say, wow, how did you handle that? And I go, yeah, if that was going to knock me off the chair, I shouldn't be in that chair. Yeah. You know, my job is not to ratchet up. My, I'm trying every day, and I'm getting way away from the mayor now, but just talking just about in, in, in general. Um, my job is, is to be a journalist, but also try to be a voice that represents as best as I can the audience and what they would like to know. So, you know, that's a big responsibility. There are tens of thousands of people listening. They don't get to ask the questions. They have to rely on me. So I have to be as conversational and and, uh, thoughtful as I can be. And that, it it, it never bothers me if things go in, in unexpected directions. Um, passion doesn't bother me. That's okay. That is part of the job. But journalism is, is the core. That's number one. And I like that. Like, I'm not sure you use the exact phrase, but I mean, you're really trying to portray the thoughts of the listener in a lot of ways. Sure. 
and may, maybe a, a directionalized version of the thoughts of the listener or the questions they want asked. But um, I think it's an interesting way to put it is, I mean, that's what you're really trying to get out there. And it's not you as much as what you think the public needs to know. Yeah. And um, there are times where it's directly the listener. There are times where it's social media, email, phone calls. But there are, the the bulk of the show is 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 my voice asking the questions, but it's it's not necessarily about me. Most talk shows are a host sort of pontificating at the world. And somebody said to me early on, you know, it's the Evan Dawson show, <laughs> and, and, and and I get that some people will call it that, yeah, but that feels more like the other talk shows, and that's not the goal of it. So I'm not all that comfortable with that, I guess, for whatever reason. It's interesting. Um, I want to just twist back to something mentioned about the callers. I, I, I recall a few instances um, over the last year where I saw, you know, I follow a number of your compatriots mm-hmm. at WXXI people. Some of them are my friends. And I recall a few instances where they just, they went off about callers and some of them being canned callers for political people. Mm-hmm. And, after they mentioned it, I started listening a little more critically. And I think I knew it at the time, but you listened more critically. And I thought that was really, it was sometimes how obvious it was. We try, we try to avoid on. plants. We try to yeah. avoid plants. And, th- and that comes, uh, that's another thing that comes with the territory. Some, uh, I will not name any names. And it's yeah. not, and by the way, it's not the mayor of Rochester, but uh, there are some politicians who are, or, or maybe, maybe it's more parties i guess i don't know but there are some times where i know we're about to get hit with a wave of plant calls yeah and you try to avoid that you know i don't need somebody reading a script from hi tell me how you how did you get to be so great (laughs) you know i just noticed the other day that you are so great and you know we try to avoid that but um that's another part of the job is recognizing those plants and trying to stamp them out. Yeah. Um, so I guess I want to take a pivot back a little bit and talk about how you got into how you got into the business. So your background was in TV before you got into radio. Yeah. I mean, oh God, people get so bored with this. I'm not. I'm. I'm scared to bore people, but I will. T- I will just give you. I'll try to keep this brief. Bullet point version. Bullet yeah, point yeah, version. Yeah. So. Uh, so I played sports growing up in high school. Um, I was not a great athlete. I was a mediocre athlete at just about every sport I played. I was not a star in anything, but it was enough to play. And then I had a heart condition. I collapsed on my driveway playing basketball right at the beginning of my snow, right uh, at the beginning of summer leading in my senior year. Um, the ground went out from under me. I had had this heart condition that I didn't know about, and... I was aware of the condition of what it did to me. It created tachycardia arrhythmia. For listeners who really want to get wonky, it's called WPW, Wolf-Parkinson-White Syndrome. Mm. And, um, and so when I collapsed, they diagnosed it. They figured out what it was, and they told me, you can't play sports senior year. Mm. Well, we had this wonderful English teacher. Tony Hody was on All My Children. He was a writer. He was an English teacher. He got drafted by the Chicago Bears to play safety out of Purdue, but then ripped up his knee. He was also Chuck Norris's stand-in for stunts. This guy was amazing. <laughs> That's a hell of a resume. Yeah, it was amazing. He was amazing. And, and his last stop was teaching English, and he wanted to create a broadcast studio. 
And so I said, well, I can't play. And the next thing I wanted to be was the Cleveland Cavaliers radio play-by-play guy because Joe Tate is the best there ever was. And I, you know, if I had one more beer, I could still do for you. No, I could do it now, but I'm not going to. Uh, I, I used to tape Cavs games off the radio. I, I, I still have cassette tapes of Cleveland Cavaliers playoff basketball games against the Chicago Bulls and the Boston Celtics in the early 1990s. And I memorized some of those calls. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, who doesn't want to talk about Brad Doherty Brad over Doherty. and over again? Come on now. Mark Price. Doherty to the line, Doherty to the lane, down the middle <laughs> scores. Yeah. I can do it with more flair if you want. Yeah. You know, I can tell you that uh, Brandon over the timeline of the fourth quarter to the left wing. Brandon... <laughs> Top side to Elo, Elo, fakes the three out of the right side to Nance, 10 on the shot clock, back to Elo, three in the air. Good. Yeah, I can do that. I'm not going to keep doing it. I've lost a lot of people who are hanging in this long. But I oh, want... Oh, although, I'm going to break in for a second here. <laughs> um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to indulge myself yeah. in sports talk yeah, for sure. three minutes. Um, how... How are you handling this craziness that's going on with the Cleveland Cavaliers right now? Nobody cares about this. Don't ask me this. No, I, I'm, I, no, I need to know Actually, this, this is unfair. I'm not going to tell you how to do your job. Do your to, job. I need to know Stroll this. me. I'll do whatever I you want. I need to know this. It's fine. Uh, you you want to know from a Cleveland fan perspective? Yeah, absolutely. We won the title in 2016. <laughs> Everything else is gravy. Okay. So what Chris... Uh, he's, he's talking about Kyrie Irving. He's going to leave. I am talking about Kyrie Irving. He wants to be traded... I can't believe a 25-year-old has an ego. He's human. <laughs> He's human. He has an ego. And he wants to be the man. And it's hard next to a guy like LeBron. It's fine. Uh, I'm going to try to be very brief. We're losing everybody here. Uh, it's fine. <laughs> the Cavs, I, I said if, if a Cleveland team wins the title in my lifetime, everything else is gravy. I will never complain again. Awesome. I have not complained. The Cleveland Indians nearly won the World Series in the same year. I said it was all gravy. I still mean that. That was a great experience. We didn't win. And if Kyrie Irving wants to play somewhere else, I will buy that man a beer every time I see him. He hit a NBA championship winning shot, and he is a hero for life on the sports scene. Is he a little immature? Does he have an ego? Is he kind of weird? Sure. I, it's fine. Some people will burn his jersey, and that will be ridiculous. Yeah. It is fine by me. Uh, I'd like to see him play, stay in Cleveland, because he's amazing. But it's all gravy, man. It's all gravy. And awesome. Joe, Joe Tate, who's still alive but not doing the Cav games anymore, never had that. He called the games in the 90s when Michael Jordan was beating them. But those were the games I was memorizing off the radio. And I thought, I want to do this. And so when I couldn't play sports anymore, I had this chance to be uh, to work for this guy. Tony Hody was an English teacher, and he created this broadcast studio. So that year, my senior year, I did play-by-play of football, basketball, and then we created the professional series. We built an interview set. We interviewed the mayor of Westlake. We interviewed the principal of the school. Yeah, I mean, we were doing all that stuff. And so I said, I'm going to go into broadcasting. I think I'll stay in sports. It turns out the world does not need more white males in sports broadcasting. But news, I became a junkie for politics, and I got into news. And, um, and along the way, by the way, I was the radio play-by-play man of the Ohio University women Bobcats, and they were good. And um, I was not. But it was fun. <laughs> uh, it was fun. And, um, and I got into news. And, uh, oh gosh, it's late enough where I'm going to say something I'm going to regret. Which is your goal? Absolutely. Almost always. Always always your goal. So let me not say that I'm going to regret, but let me just say this. 
commercial television news concerns me. And sure. I, and I worked in it for a long time. This country has a bit of... Uh, oh, boy. We're a bit in the grips of the Dunning-Kruger effect for the country. We have a bunch of people who think that they're super informed and they want to opine and hit you on the head and tell you what their opinion is. And when you peel it back, they actually don't know very much. All right, one one minute. One minute Dunning-Kruger definition, please, yeah, for, I mean, Dunning, for those that haven't heard of it. Dunning-Kruger are socio- sociologists who worked together in the late 90s and early 2000s at Cornell, of all places. And they did. They basically figured out that um, the less you know about something, the more you think you're an expert. And the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And if you've ever argued with an uncle at Thanksgiving who thinks they know everything about the world and they want you to wear their Make America Great Again hat or whatever it is, then you have probably experienced the Dunning-Kruger effect. And that's not a political statement. That was probably unfair. But the point is, there is an epidemic of this st- this stuff out there. And um, I'm concerned that local commercial television news, they do 30-second stories, and they tell you, we'll keep you informed. And you think that you're informed. And you are informed at the most surface level. And I participate in that. And there are times where they do it amazingly well. I've got wonderful colleagues and former co-workers at Channel 13. They're, they're some of the best in the business. I just am concerned about the surface level knowledge people have and yet the confidence they have that they're experts. That bothers me. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things that you can't address it with every individual person. Like you, you can change one person sometimes. Sometimes. It's possible. Sometimes. Um, but the... But it's amazing how ingrained it can be. I was, I was on vacation this last week, and I was discussing, you know, I'm not not too many details, but you know, talking to my dad, you know, he's classic business owner, conservative, um, maybe not conservative, you know, socially, but conservative, big conservative, financially, and everything else. Sure. Mm-hmm. And trying to explain nothing wrong with that, but trying to explain certain things to him because your perspective on life is so different when you're, you know, one child of five that got out on his own because he did things in a very aggressive way. And he got out before out of five kids in his family, in a poor family in the middle of the you know country, whatever one person got out and he sees that he can only see that as try harder. You can get yourself out. Everybody can get themselves out instead of four out of five because of circumstances fail. Yeah, that's one of the traps, is that people see anecdotes, and they think that's representative of everything. Yeah. So sometimes the sad thing in understanding human nature policy and success and opportunity is you do see remarkable stories of overcoming odds, but that gives some people the license they think to say, well, everybody can do that. If you can do that, then everybody can. And that's not always the case. Yeah. And there's a bit of a trap there. It's but hard I to, don't know your dad. Don't let no, me. No, but no, it's, it's hard I'm to sure escape. I'm sure your dad's a wonderful it's, guy. It's hard to escape a life lived. How, how can you, 
you remove yourself from the life you've lived. Well, we need to teach people better that it's hard. Your, your experience is not a scientific study. Yeah, and that's it. Can be it's very challenging. And by the way, that's a lesson I need to tell myself often. I, I don't mean to be sort of condescending. No, I think we I, all do. I fall I fall in that trap all the time. Absolutely. Anyways, I'm gonna pivot out of that. Yeah. Um. So, TV to radio. So yeah. we talked about TV for a second. You move you move over to radio, and you move into a a show that kind of existed already. That oh, existed already. very much so. Yeah. And it was before my time. When I started paying attention, mm-hmm. but um, you transitioned from TV into an established radio show. What was that like? Uh, it was it was very difficult and it was intimidating because Bob Smith hosted that show for twenty five years, and he would he could read a book in a night. He was very devoted to the show. He set a very important standard that I hope will live on well beyond me, and I hope will be his legacy. I, I, I know it will be, which is that we keep moving through this digital age toward less and less attention span, or at least what people think or consultants think. And Bob sort of proved that if you're prepared for an interview, that people will hang in there and listen. The whole thing. And that's great. That is important. Inheriting that is pretty daunting. You're doing 51 minutes an hour when most broadcast journalism is, you know, a half hour of news. Quote-unquote news on commercial is more like nine minutes of news. Yeah. You know, we're, we're doing 51 minutes basically straight with one 30-second break. You can't fake that. You can't walk into that hour unprepared. And I knew that. So what I started to do was I, I prepared in a way that was th- thorough, to say the least, but I also I scripted every question, everything I wanted to squeeze in, and I sort of trapped myself a little bit. And I don't know, necessarily think it was ever bad, but I was so determined to live up to that standard that I got addicted to the preset questions, and it was hard to get away from. And I, what I learned over time is that I still prepare the same way. I want to be over-prepared, but I want notes to be a little shorter, and I want to be more of an outline guy, less of I've got 20 scripted questions, because when that happens, then you start to lose... Uh, lose is the wrong word. You miss the chances to let something breathe or to listen and to pivot and say, wow, tell me more about this. Or what the hell did you just say? (laughs) Either funny or ridiculous or outrageous or totally not credible because you get locked into what you think you need to do. And I have learned that uh, you can't fake it. You need to prep and over prep, but then you need to be comfortable pulling it back a little giving yourself an outline and trusting yourself to let something breathe a little. And it's definitely one of those things where force, when you try and force it in a direction that it doesn't want to go, I think that's where you, you lose that. You lose any feel of a conversation 
and it turns into a Q&A instead of a conversation. Yeah, I mean, I, I prefer... Uh, that's a really good way to describe it that I've never heard before, by the way, but I prefer conversation to Q&A. And I'm going to steal that. Can I steal that? Oh, 100%. Per- permission to steal it from Stromy. Uh, that's really good because... I mean, I, I will be extreme here, but there have been people will understand what I mean when I say, let's say I'm interviewing someone, and they say, you know, I had a pretty good day, went down to the beach, hung out with the family. You know, we hid the body that we found, you know, that washed <laughs> up on the beach, and, and then we had dinner. And I go, interesting, and what are you going to do tomorrow? People go, wait a what? <laughs> There's a body on the beach. Did you miss it? And they're going, I missed it, yeah. because... I had my set questions, and I'm not really listening. Now, that's the extreme example. I don't know if anybody's <laughs> on the beach, but I, but I definitely missed plenty of opportunity, and I'm sure I still do, but I go back to the early recordings, and I went, oh, my goodness. You know, you're just too addicted to your script. But you have to have some script. You have to have an outline. You have to have an idea of the narrative arc where you want it to go, or you think it should go, or and... and especially on the political side. I'm more scripted on the political side because there are certain questions that need answers or at least need to be asked. And I, and I don't have a problem with that. So Yeah, and I find, I find those sometimes can be the most engaging, even though they're the more repetitive ones, like having all the city council candidates on. Yeah. I, I find those fascinating because sometimes, sometimes the people just fall apart when they're being asked basic questions. Or sometimes they really impress you. Absolutely. Sometimes you say, wow, this person has a remarkably thoughtful mind or has a creative idea that I've never heard before. Yeah. But mostly we do those sort of series of interviews, even if they're a little more scripted, because uh, I do think that there's a danger that we have in thinking that everyone can be ready for elections. If you just watch 90 seconds of news, you hear a few sound bites, you see a few ads. I, I don't believe that. I want to listen to people at length. And sometimes I want to question them firmly at length Yeah, if there's a reason. And I think they should be willing to answer those questions. But I think most of the time they are. And I think that's, that's where I'm more scripted. That's where I know what I feel like has to be answered. And most of the time, in 51 minutes, I get to roughly half of the questions I wanted to. That's just the way it goes. Yeah. But you always have to have that in your mind. Where are we going What's the, what time do we have left, and, and what's the goal here? On a side note, I really do appreciate the fact that I can tune in and listen to Alex White for an hour yeah, and listen to him talk about all these topics for someone who the public generally doesn't know who he is. And the fact that we get to listen to him for an hour, give a different perspective on things, I find that to be a valuable service that you guys are providing to give some of those different perspectives out there. Well, here's another th- reason I like you, because this, that's a great compliment to us. And, and here's why. You're bringing up the Green Party candidate for mayor. The undertone of what you just said is that some broadcast outlets treat, quote-unquote, third-party candidates as less serious. They don't get the time. You know, People don't really know who they are. My view is that if you are running... I don't really care how much money you've raised. Money in politics is a little too powerful for my taste. And it shouldn't be the barrier. If you have good ideas and you're going to be on the ballot, and by the way, I'm not the arbiter of good ideas. Generally, if you're going to be on the ballot, I will listen. And I think listeners, 
will take the time to hear it out. And we don't discriminate. I try not to ask people like, well, you can't win, right? I mean, that, that's a terrible <laughs> thing to assume because the media sort of picks the winners and losers from the start. And some great conversations come out of saying, well, this person maybe pragmatically, we would say, probably can't win, but I'm not going to get, get bogged down with that. I want to hear what they have to say. Yeah. I, I just find that opportunity interesting, especially with you know Rochester being the kind of city where we have three Democratic candidates for mayor. Yep. And the fact that there is a Republican candidate is kind of an interesting thing in of itself. Yes, the Republican was interesting. It's Tony Mitchell. I, I actually I <laughs> I was surprised at how much I liked him as a person when I listened to it. Oh, he's a very nice person. Yeah. He brought us a cake. Did he really? Do you know what we call it? We called it Tony Mitchell cake. <laughs> That's terrible. I it really was terrible. Appreciate it. it was terrible. I, I I'm a I'm a I'm a, a connoisseur of great puns. Uh, he's a very nice person. Yeah. No question about it. Yeah, so I think that kind of brings me to my next point with we talked briefly in the wine part of this about evidence and I wanted to use overuse the term balance again and talk about how do you balance because you talk to all these different people who have a lot of experiential information. How do you balance between evidence-based and these anecdotes that people have about their lives lived? Oh, gosh. That is its own separate hour. Yeah. Um, it's very difficult. <sighs> Let me give you an example on this. When we talk about Black Lives Matter, when we talk about police conduct. It is exactly the example I was going to bring up, by yeah. the way, that specific episode. You know, people will call and they will share their stories. And you hear some really tough stuff. Yeah. Who am I as a white male to tell a black caller, I don't know if I can trust this. I mean, how do I verify? One of my good friends is a tall black guy. Countless times he's been pulled over, basically for being black. I am not sitting here, by the way, disparaging police. Right. And it sounds like it. I'm not. My five-year-old slaps hands with every officer he sees. His favorite Paw Patrol character is Chase, the police dog. He's not being taught that police are evil, nefarious. I'm relating the complexity of human experience. And there's no question that my friends of color have been treated differently. I don't think it's most of the time it's intentional. doesn't mean it hasn't happened. So when someone calls the show and relays an anecdote, I, I, I'm in a hard spot because sometimes they're saying some really tough stuff about police, and I cannot verify it. I also don't want to be the person to disallow them the chance to finally tell somebody about it. So I try to be at least courteous enough to tell the audience basically that that I don't want to cut somebody off and that the audience will have to weigh it on their own. I mean, we trust listeners to do that. Mostly, getting away from sort of that heavy stuff, mostly I'm, I, I'm an evidence guy like you. I think we over-rely on anecdotes. 
So when I book shows or when I take calls, what I think the best is, do you have a body of evidence? Do you have a new study? Do you have good statistical data? And then can you illustrate it with the human experience? Because I don't want to just be a data bomb. The best is when you can do both. You can illustrate it with a human experience that crystallizes it for people. And then you're able to also say, the data supports this. That's the ultimate. Yeah. Um, I do want to briefly pivot back to that specific episode yeah. that was recently. Um, it was one that grabbed me. You know, I, I can't say I listen to every single hour that you do on the radio. Again, no one's perfect. <laughs> um, and, you know, the truth I pick and choose based on sometimes the topic. And for whatever reason, that was one when I listened to it, it grabbed me at how how separate you it was their it was their show it wasn't your show for an hour almost it was their show yeah and that ability to step behind and let them essentially tell this whole narrative of that life lived um i was surprised at the directions they took it with you know, um, these desires to disband the entire police force yeah, and all that stuff. Exactly. I, yeah. I was shocking is the right word. I think it was a shock to the system to hear that. So directly put. And so truthfully from their experience put out there, it was one of those, just one of those hours that grabbed me in a weird way. I, I can't, I can't think that way. It doesn't make sense to me. No, me neither. But I found the way that they portrayed it so interesting that it's it made me want to learn more about it. Well, and, and this is where you are like sort of the ideal listener, to be, to be honest, because I heard from listeners who were like, you can't let them say that. How dare you let them say that? You have to jump in and cut them off. And my response was, listen, do I think we're going to disband the police? No. Do I think that's a good idea? My opinion is not what drives the show. Yeah. I will tell you, I think that's a terrible idea. I think the world cannot operate without police forces. But, man, is it easy as a white male yeah. to say that. I mean, we're. I have never felt fear when a police officer rolled up. And again, I'm not trying to disparage police. I have real love for them, but I've never felt that. I've never felt discrimination at all. It is so easy to be me. So what I decided in that in that hour, for the most part, there were times where I kind of jumped in. There was. I remember a moment where I said, "Look." you don't really think police are being trained to attack people of color. I mean, that was, to me, a bridge too far. Uh, that's not happening. It's just not. But ultimately, I decided Black Lives Matter as a national movement does not support disbanding police. The local leadership apparently kind of does. And if they do, I want to hear why. Yeah. I just want to mostly listen and then trust myself to evaluate. Now, did that convince me we shouldn't have police? No. 
Do I think that convinced most listeners? No. But I think listeners need to sort of, I hope, get outside of what makes you uncomfortable and be willing to absorb as best you can why people may disagree. Even if it doesn't change your mind, it helps us understand one another better. And I just kept going back to even during that hour, I'm going, wow. It's hard. It's a fluid thing. There's not a script for that. That was not a position I expected them to take. Yeah. And it's really easy as the white male in America. Straight, cis, white, upper middle class male to cast judgment. And mostly, I want to at least hear why they feel that way. I think that will make me a more educated citizen and I don't have to agree. But listeners, some listeners wanted me to just cut it off, knock it down. And I, I decided not to. And I'm not perfect. I mean, I, I, that 51 minutes, 500 times a year, I screw up a lot. So I don't know. I don't think that was one of them. I don't know. I, I, I don't think it was because I think I, I want to bring it back to a term you used in there, which I think is valuable to expand upon for a second is uncomfortable. Um, we're bad at being uncomfortable. Oh, we're terrible. We're generally, we're very bad at being uncomfortable and I find it really valuable to be uncomfortable with something and examine it. Um, take that time to think about why something is the way it is. Why are you uncomfortable? What's yeah. going on there? You talk about being uncomfortable for a second in what you do day to day. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of criticism that comes in to my job and I, and I, and I'm lucky. I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to BS you. Yeah. There's a lot of really kind words. There's a lot of praise, but there is inevitably going to be feedback that is really tough. There, there have been times where people say, why did you conduct the interview this way? People have said to me via email, have you ever taken anti-racism training? Do you think you need it? That's a very direct thing to say. Absolutely. And I can tell you very specifically, I can remember one email where I wrote back to a person and said, uh, I have done the sort of bias examination online. I think probably as a white male, I could always use more anti-racism training. <clears throat> and um, I'm open to it. I'm open to what I've done wrong. I'm open to how my implicit bias might work here. And there are times where it's tough to hear people who've been disappointed in me or, or hurt by certain things that they hear. And the world doesn't really need more white males with microphones. We get sort of enough of that. So I think to the extent that I am a white male with a microphone, and the last I checked, I am, I have to be cognizant of that and at least be willing to be uncomfortable when people don't like it or feel like I've missed the point or missed an experience or misrepresented. If I'm not willing to be, I am not cut out for this. And we had an amazing phone call the other day. We, we had this show. So, so the, the, the launch point for one of our shows recently was Doctor Who is going to be a woman. And I'm not a Whovian. I know nothing about it. Yeah, other I, don't, than... I, don't, I don't either, but, 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 but I'm not disparaging. I'm just not. Sure. 
uh, and but there's a big deal in the in the entertainment Doctor Who world. Doctor Who's going to be a woman, and a lot of celebration. But there, there's some backlash. I think not a whole lot, but you know the typical sort of, you know, same amount as misogynist. Yeah, same amount as the female Ghostbusters movie. Female Ghostbusters. James Bond's going to be a black man. Holy cow! Yeah, James exactly. Bond's a white man. Santa Claus has to be white. Right. You know, this is really ridiculous stuff. And we had this conversation about what does it mean culturally that we're so uncomfortable when these fictional protagonists don't be, you know, don't conform usually to the whiteness that we have for them, and uh, or to the gender, and and it was a I thought it was a very interesting hour, but at the end, this woman calls to say, "I grew up in this bubble, and." Only in later life did I realize that basically I have racism. I didn't experience, you know, diversity. I had fear. And, but then she said, when I start to admit that, it, I'm fearful. Because when people hear you say, like, I might be a racist or I might have racism, they view you as evil. They don't say, oh, you're being honest about it. Let's unpack that. They are like, you're evil. And so she's scared to even bring it up. And so as uncomfortable as it might make me, I just said, look, I'm with you. I'm a white male. Way too often, we want to create two doors to walk through. Are you a racist or not a racist? Congratulations, Shromi. You're not racist. I don't view it as two doors. I think it's a sliding scale. We are baked in with a lot of prejudice, particularly people like me, um, and we have to try to understand it. I, I don't mean like I'm I'm out there as a racist trying to do harmful things cognizantly. I'm just trying to understand human nature, and I think it's a sliding scale. And if I don't admit that there's some of that in me, I think I'm being disingenuous. But that's uncomfortable to do it. That's hard. And I think... I think one of the things you just brought up is something I talk about often, and I assume one of the challenges with running an interview show is the gray area. Um, seems like there's a lot of programming right now that everything is one side or the other. We've got black and white. We've got left and right. We've got everything else. And it's you're one side or the other. And I'm wondering how that's... Have you seen that change even the last few years you've been running the show... Are people neglecting the gray area? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really wise observation because we've become so polarized, so tribal, with us or against us, that everything's sort of a litmus test. You know who has it really hard? Pro-life Democrats. Where, the, where do they go? Yeah. You know, and... and they often feel like they're treated like you're not welcome in the Democratic Party. You can't be pro-life and be a feminist. That's really hard if they're taking an intellectually honest position. And I, I, I'm just uncomfortable with that. I'm somebody who really takes great pleasure when my mind changes. I feel like that's not a weakness, but we're sort of training ourselves. Um, and, 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 and this is somebody who... Somebody who I, I, I sort of personally kind of like, and I don't mean to offend any listeners, but George W. Bush said, I would love to have a beer with that guy. Absolutely. And by the way, over time, 
I mean, he sort of looks better and better in some ways. Uh, but you, I'll, I'll you, stop there. I'll stop there. But but we never but we never got you never got the feeling that he wasn't being himself. In Agre- a lot agree of with ways. that. Agree with that. But he made it a virtue never to change his mind. He yeah. was very proud of that. That he's going to stick to his beliefs, and that became the kind of thing where Obama takes office, and it's like you can't admit you're wrong. That's weakness. The media will kill you. Admit you're wrong when you're wrong. Embrace it or say, I don't know. That's a powerful thing. I tell my five-year-old all the time, that's a great thing. When you don't know, it opens the door for you to learn more as opposed to thinking you know everything. And when you say you're wrong, it shows how humble and open you are to other experience. We don't really have that. We don't, we don't have much of that. And that does make hosting a talk show hard. Uh, don't don't feel sorry for me, anybody. But uh, <laughs> but but there is this expectation. It's like, well, how dare you? Or yeah. this person's not valid, or they don't pass the test. They don't pass the test to be a guest on your show. That's unfortunate. I do have trouble with that. Yeah. Um, lightening up a little bit. I've been a guest on your show two or three times, and I want to ask about. Sitting there, the way the way you run an interview, you have a you go. Sometimes you go around the room asking people the same question. Sometimes they're pointed to each person, but there's a lot of it moves relatively quickly. There's mm-hmm. not a, there's no there's not a lot of dead space. It's a quick moving discussion. You have an hour to tackle a topic with sometimes up to four people in the room other than yourself. Have you had some experiences with people just completely fall apart? <laughs> when you're asking them a question and they just can't get to something. I, I felt that way when I was there. And luckily I have some, you know, experience and comfortability sitting around and bullshitting and just talking. Yeah. But I imagine it has to be some humorous times where people just fall apart when you're sitting there in an interview. Yes. Do you want a story? Uh, yeah. Obviously we're not targeting any specific people, but yes. I won't name any names here. There was a time where we were doing a story that called for a panel discussion on... i got to be careful. <laughs> I have to be careful here. <laughs> uh, oh, let me give you broad finance. Okay. And it's, I, I, it is almost certainly no one that any of your listeners would know. Yeah. I can't even remember this person's name, to be honest. They were recommended... So, the, so um, just sort of backing up. Another thing that we do on the, uh, when we book guests is we're very careful not to make sure it's not all white guys. Yeah. Um, and, and there's not like a litmus test or like a like a a quota, but it's easy to fall into traps. So we and, and there's a lot of wonderful voices from all backgrounds. And we got to a point where it's like we were talking money, and it was like, oh great, we had seven people we invited, and the first three to say yes were white guys, and everybody of color, every woman was unavailable. So I called this person. I'm like, Do you, can you help me out here? And they said, yes, we have one of our partners. She's going to be able to be there tomorrow. We get a call an hour before the show. She said, I'm, it turns out i got to be with a client. I'm not available. I'm going to send my other business partner, who I thought was a woman. It was a male. So we had four white guys. Uh, the first time we came to him for an answer, do you remember the first time you drove a stick shift? 
tried driving stick. Do you drive stick? I don't. Have you ever tried to drive stick? I well, I, I grew up on a I grew up on a farm, so I drove tractors, and yeah. I, I I think I drove a truck once. I'll out myself. I don't drive stick. Yeah, I have tried. Yeah, I'm sure I can learn. But my goodness, the herky jerky, unable to actually do anything affliction that happens when you try to drive a stick and you've never done it before. Oh, yeah. Now, this is not, by the way, me making fun of somebody who stutters or has you know, an actual sort of uh, affliction that they deal with. It was just the worst public speaker, <laughs> unable to <laughs> convey anything of value ever to the point where the person behind the booth was looking at me with these eyes like saucers. And I went, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> what, what am I going to do here? And I have to do two things. I have to be respectful of the guest and respect the audience who feels like they're being tortured. <laughs> and that's that, and that's not easy because I, anybody who comes into the studio, they're giving up their time. We respect them. Yeah. And it was just, the, you know, I might have come to them fewer times. That yeah. does happen. Uh Sounds merciful in that case. So the answer is yes. But then what I try to do is tee up really easily packaged questions that don't require a whole lot of, uh, you know, introspection. But that's part of the job. That's okay. Yeah. And, and, and happily, that's been pretty rare. It's been pretty rare. Um, most people, if you give them a chance to jump on a microphone, they'll surprise you. They're yeah. great. And it seems like generally the people that show up on the show are, I'd say, on the average, very well versed on the topics that they're there to talk about, which yeah. is, I suppose, all you could ever hope for. Yeah, really. that's part of the goal. I mean, there have been, there was one time where I said to a guest, I kind of regret having you on. Ooh. You want to hear this quick oh, story? Yeah. So uh, there's, a, there's a, an issue about vaccines. Oh, God. Yeah, that's. Yeah, that's that's one of those crazy loaded topics. Three three states, um, and if I'm remembering, California, West Virginia of all places, and then somewhere in the south, have laws passed where you can't refuse a vaccine for your kids just on religious grounds. That there has to be something else beyond that. Um, and New York State has a downstate assemblyman who proposed Jeffrey Dinowitz a, a similar bill that says we should not be refusing vaccines on religious grounds. Uh, and so I had, the, I had the assemblyman on the show. I had a local epidemiologist on the show. And then I thought, well, I, I just want to make sure I do understand the parent perspective. Because just as an aside, I know a friend who is a parent who is what people would call an anti-vaxxer. She is one of the most devoted, loving mothers I've ever met. You know, the, these people, people who refuse vaccines for their kids are not evil. I mean, no. they're really trying. Yeah, and, and so anyway, the, I wanted somebody on the show to represent that viewpoint that says, help me understand this. And there's a woman who is an attorney downstate, and she represents what, what she calls vaccine rights cases. And so I get in touch with her, and she, yeah, she, she basically represents families who don't want vaccines, and, and they want to legally say, you can't make me do it for my kid. And she tells us, this is a libertarian issue. We don't think the government should be saying what you can put in your body or your kid's body. We think that's up to the parents. 
Now, intellectually, it doesn't matter if I agree with that. I understand the logic there. She gets on the show on the phone and says, vaccines don't work. Ooh. Polio was not eradicated by a vaccine. <laughs> it was some aerosol that we stopped using concurrently when the vaccine was released, Ooh. which, of course, is not true. Right. And I went, oh, my goodness. And I'm, I'm thinking in my head, what a bait and switch here. Right. You're on here arguing that vaccines don't even work. And you're getting into Alex Jones territory. Very, very much quickly. so. Very much so. And I'm thinking the longer I let this go, the more I'm giving a microphone to someone who could do real damage with the total disinformation. And finally, I said, at a, at a weak moment as a host, I kind of regret having you on. And she said, well, I kind of regret coming on. And that was not my best moment. Hmm. Not, not my best. That was a surprise. But we tried to be reasonably prepared for, number one, someone's public speaking ability, and number two, you know, generally their viewpoint or what they're likely to bring. Yeah. Well, I think I want to close it out with talking about public speaking in general. I've found from my experience that sitting behind a microphone is a very different experience than talking to a crowd. Mm-hmm. And I think you, you have you have a fair amount of experience talking in front of crowds. Yeah. Um I've done very little. I I was uh, I participated in the DNC storytelling, their first storytelling thing they did this year. And it was the first time I'd been on a stage in front of a crowd in a while. And I noted how different I was when I told the story in a small group in a restaurant. We were practicing. I, I noted how different I was telling the story there than I felt on stage. The people didn't see it, but I felt it. I was wondering about, I mean, you, you do a fair amount of public speaking. Yeah. How, how has that changed since you started doing it? The best advice I ever got came from my father, who's a very good public speaker. And he said, first of all, think of all the times you've been at a work event, someone speaks, at a conference, whatever it is. What makes it so bad? (laughs) Because so much of it, let's be honest, is bad. Yeah. Number one, people walk in and they say things like, well, thanks for having me. Uh, My name is uh, John Doe, and uh, I I grew up around here, and, and you're going... <laughs> or people will say, you know, I wanted to start with a joke. I think you'll find this funny. <laughs> Again, it's sort of like the passion thing. If you have to tell people they're going to find it funny, they're probably not. Mm. So my father told me, whatever you are doing in public speaking, start with a story. Do not introduce yourself. Do not say hello. Do not say thanks for having me. Go right into a story. People love to listen to stories. It starts in our childhood, and it never really leaves us. Now, we don't necessarily know it as adults. We're not as aware of it. But if you're sitting in a conference, and someone comes out and says, well, I just flew in, and boy, are my arms tired. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And uh, <laughs> I thought I'd start with a little bit of a laugh for you. And you're going... Oh my goodness. How do I get out of this? And if someone comes in and says, it was an unexpected way to die, but if we had to die, 
this was the place to do it. You go, oh, I'm listening now. Yeah. Um, I don't know why it's profound that that has been profound to me, but it has been. And the one thing that I feel like I do well, I don't feel like I do a whole lot of things all that well, but I feel like I can speak to crowds because I am so familiar with what I hate about public speakers (laughs) that I just don't want to be that guy. And I know that people like to listen to stories and that pulls them in. And so what I've learned first and foremost is you start with the audience in mind, not yourself. You don't thank the host. I've got a few people to thank. Thanks for having me. I, do you care? I don't care. Nobody cares. Skip it. Start with a story. Explain why you're... I say explain why it's relevant. Get them in. Make them care. And um, that has been tremendously helpful to me as a public speaker, and I love to do it. I, to this day, um, love to speak to crowds. It's one of the most fun things that I do. Yeah, and I do want a a specific example. I've I've seen you talk to a crowd a couple times, and I think the one, I forget the event, I think it was involved with writers and books maybe, Mm. with... um, with the translation group at the U of R, I think they were the hosts. I, I forget the name of the group. I think you had one of the one of them on the other day. Uh, yes, uh, yes, indeed. Stramanis or whatever her last name is. Kaya Stramanis, yeah. And Stramanis, yeah. And her boyfriend or whatever his name is. I know him as well. They run that together. They do that translation thing at the U of R. Chad Post, he's remarkable. A fascinating guy. I really like him as a person. They're all tremendous there. Um, And I went to their event this last year, and I think that was the thing that stood out was when you went up to tell a story, and it was related to an episode you had done recently. You kind of there was a story that was you know somewhat being retold, but it was it jumped, it jumped off because you weren't talking about you, you were talking about a story. Yeah. And what you're referencing is a story about, I mean, a really, really tough story. It was. About a Palestinian doctor who was the first Palestinian doctor to deliver Jewish, Israeli babies in Tel Aviv and was seen as this international symbol of the chance of, of healing between Palestinians and Israelis. And when the Israelis conducted a siege on Gaza in 2009 and for, fired mortars. Mortars hit his family's, basically the compound apartment that his family was living in. His daughter died. And I mean, it was just this horrible thing. And um, yeah, I mean, I, he had been on the show. And one of the reasons that we were able to tell the story is he wrote this book and it was translated from a foreign language. And that's what Open Letter Books did. And that's why they're, they were there tonight. So I wanted to share that story as a powerful, that without international translation, I wouldn't know that powerful story. So yeah, I just started right there at the top of the story. So so thank you for noticing that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah actually, I have, I have one of their books on, on my shelf right now that I haven't gotten to yet. But oh, see, this, this goes right back. Chad Post, I hope you're listening. This is someone who's got one of the books on your shelf. And you know what? I feel like I respect you more for having the book because I assumed you read it. I didn't read it yet, but I, I went to the talk. The author, the, the translator was there, and I went and I listened. I, I was expecting I, I'd randomly uh, come across Chad and another, yeah. another thing he was doing, and 
I just came to the event to talk to them, to talk to him and, uh, and Kaya there. And I didn't expect to stay the whole time, but I did because I found the translator so engaging. Um, and I had to buy the book after I needed to, because I, I was just so engaged by the story and by, you know, how, how well the story was told. You verbally. charlatan, you read the book. I know, right? <laughs> it's sitting on my shelf. It just makes me look good. Yeah. That's the whole purpose of it. You just bought it as a showpiece. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that just ties back to, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up because it's way too late, but, um, I think sometimes, you know, giving these people the opportunity to tell their stories and let them jump out is what you do best. And again, not, not just to laugh at what you're doing, but the reason why I come back and listen is because I get to hear these interesting stories from people that I wouldn't necessarily always hear. And I get to, I get to understand people a little bit differently because they're able to tell their stories and, with direction, of course, but giving them the opportunity to speak their own words, I think makes me interested to come back and listen on a almost daily basis. And I really can't recommend to people enough that if you want to be engaged in what Rochester is doing right now, what the people of Rochester are saying that you really need to be listening from 12 to two on WXXI to uh, connections the Evan Dawson show. Oh, yeah. That's a good callback there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but listen to Connections. Thank you. And um, give the plug for where else they can find it. Yeah. And first of all, if you're a podcast subscriber at all, and hopefully on your mobile device you are, I mean, and most of us are these days, just subscribe to the podcast. Um, and, and I never say this enough, by the way, <laughs> but... Not only is every hour quote-unquote podcasted, but we create an actual podcast called Weekend Connections, the podcast. Uh, the producer, Megan Mack, and I do, and it launches every Friday afternoon, and it's our favorite moments from the week, and it always runs 15 to 20 minutes. So every Friday afternoon, whatever you missed, or if, you, if you're curious to know what our standout moments were, it's like perfect for your treadmill or weekend drive, and it launches every Friday afternoon, and it'll show up on your podcast feed. Otherwise, noon to two, on, on 1370 WXXI, the mobile app, do that. Um, and, uh, and thank you. This has been great fun. Did you, I don't know if you got two episodes out of it. You might, you might get two here. I man. think I got two. I'm, we're over two hours total. So I'm, I'm actually going to split it. No one's going to listen to two. You're going to have to split this. I'm splitting it. I don't split most of them. Don't usually, let me tell you how to do your job because you I do go, it well. But. I go long. I usually go long an hour and a half. I'll leave it as one, but two hours. I think you got two. I think I got two. So, Evan, thanks for coming over, buddy. I really appreciate it. It was great fun. I love what you do, and I will see you in my studio soon, but this has been great fun being on the other side. Thanks for coming.